Well, let's begin this morning. Um, I want to tell you right up front, we're looking at the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. And before we comb through the details, I want to say this. Aren't you glad the canon of Scripture is closed? <laughs> I mean, think about it. How would you feel if the darkest sin of your life was published for all the world to see in the most popular book the world has ever known, right? What would that be like to see your compromise outlined detail by detail, line by line? Aren't you glad this is a story about David and not a story about you? Well, actually, the story of David is a story about you. And me too, for that matter. It may look different for each of us, but the heart of the issue is the same. It's why Paul warns the Corinthians, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. In other words, we are always most vulnerable when we don't believe the story applies to us. Well... You see, our greatest compromises often take place in a context of comfort. The enemy waits patiently for us to, to take our eyes off the Lord, to let our guard down, and that's what's happening in the life of David. At this point in time, David is about 50 years old. He's reigned as king for some 20 years He's loved by the people. He's expanded their borders not once. Not one single time has he lost in battle. Israel is highly respected by the nations around them. They're financially uh, sufficient. They are politically stable. David is comfortable as he rules as king over Israel. I want you to notice in all that we are about to read, not once does David ever turn to the Lord. Despite all that God does, and I hope you see this clearly, despite all that God does to get his attention, David continues to press forward on his own. And here's why. He's learned to manage life without truly depending on God. He's comfortable. And in time, his comfort has led to apathy. His apathy has led to compromise. And compromise becomes a slippery slope of sin. Now, I want to say right up front, and I want you to hear me clearly. There is not a person in this room, myself included, who is immune to the pattern of sin that we are about to follow. We can be just as comfortable in our very predictable routine, which does not mean that life is necessarily easy. What it does mean is that we've learned to manage life without truly depending on God. We look for His blessings, but we don't often seek His face. What's true for David is true for us. His story is our story. If we're not careful, our comfort can turn into apathy. Apathy, just as it did for him. That apathy turns into compromise. And compromise for all of us is a slippery slope of sin. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, 
lest he fall. If you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you would, begin reading with me in verse 1. <clears throat> then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, his servants, with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. At a time when kings go out to battle, David stayed at Jerusalem. It's a subtle sign of compromise, but as we've seen throughout the account so far, this is not who David is, is it? David is a warrior. He ran to the battle with Goliath. David is a a shepherd who defended his sheep from the lion and the bear. Even Saul, in all his inadequacies, was a man who went to battle with his men. In fact, he died on the battlefield with his men and with his sons. But David stayed home in Jerusalem. After all, his armies are undefeated. They're doing just fine without him. So David chooses not to fight. Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. I'm going to pause there. I want to make sure you understand what that just said. When evening came, David arose from his bed. It's evening, and David is still in bed. Talk about comfortable. He's ruling the kingdom on autopilot. There's apparently no turbulence to speak of, so David is taking a nap, both literally and spiritually. He has let his guard down, and now the enemy will have his way. Look at verse 2 again. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And uh, one said, is not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David gets out of bed and goes for a walk. He doesn't go far. He walks to his balcony of his palace. If you'll remember from our conversation last week, uh, the city of David was built on a hill, and the palace of David was on the top of that hill so from his balcony he could look out onto the city and really see pretty much the entire city within the protection of the city wall on this particular day a woman was bathing and caught his eye now there's no indoor plumbing but it's definitely a little bit odd that she would be out in the evening taking a bath he looked long enough to see that she was beautiful he let his eyes linger which wasn't a good idea, but I'm also not convinced that Bathsheba is completely blameless either. She had to know that there was a chance that she could be seen. She shares some of the blame for carelessly offering the temptation. I see this often in our world today as girls dressed immodestly, and they often say, well, if you're tempted, then that's your fault. No, that's not true. You share some of the blame. David should have been in battle, not on the balcony. But Bathsheba should have been more discreet 
not so immodest in her actions. David looked. He lingered. And then he inquired. He tells his servant, go find out about this woman who lives next door. Now, I think the response from the servant was a warning. <laughs> because of what he says, he says, oh, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. In other words, David, that's Bathsheba. She's married. It's not a real common introduction that you'll see throughout the entire Old Testament to highlight the fact that that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It was a warning. But David blew right past the warning. He looked, he lingered, he inquired, and then he yielded. Look at verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and when he came to her, he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. For the second time now, David chose not to fight. He should, in that moment of temptation, fled. Run the opposite direction. Get as far away as you can. But in that moment, he chose not to fight. David should have never had the moment. He should have been in battle, but he chose not to fight. That's twice. Comfort led to apathy. Apathy led to compromise. And compromise will become a slippery slope of sin. As I said earlier, you'll notice throughout this entire account, David never once stops and turns to the Lord but I don't want you to miss how many times the Lord will work to redirect David. I really believe that David's servant was a divine stop sign. It was a way of escape. It was the way the Lord was saying to him, David, don't do it. She's married. She's the wife of your most trusted soldier. She is the daughter of one of your longtime mentors. The servant was a way of escape, a divine stop sign, and David blew right past it. Now that single night of passion will turn into a, a lifetime of pain. But it didn't have to be that way. Yes, Bathsheba is pregnant, which is bad enough. But David will make it worse by trying to cover his sin. Instead of confessing his sin, instead of turning to the Lord and seeking his redemption, David took matters into his own hands, tries to hide his sin, and he will only make it worse. Look at how it continues in verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came in, David asked him concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and, and, and a present went from the king, was sent out after him. David's first attempt at trying to cover his sin was a fairly simple solution. He sends a message to Joab, the commander of his armies. 
and request for him to send to him Uriah the Hittite, one of his best soldiers, because he wants to visit with him at the palace. David invites Uriah to his palace and wants to ask him about what's happening at the war. See, this is a simple solution in David's mind because Uriah has been away from his wife for months by this time, most likely. And I'll explain why here shortly. He's assuming that if I invite him back and give him an opportunity to be with his wife, then everybody will think that the baby that she will then someday have belongs to him. And I'll be scot-free. That was his plan. He invites Uriah to the palace and asks him, how are things on the battlefield? Is everything going okay? His words were dripping with hypocrisy. David didn't care what was going on at the battlefield. If he did, he'd have been in the battlefield with his men. Instead, in that moment, his only concern was using Uriah to cover his sin. If Uriah sleeps with his wife, everyone will assume that the baby belongs to him. So David sends him home. He sends gifts, I don't know, chocolate and wine, hoping for the best. But something interesting happens. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord, Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping In the open field, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He refuses to go home, choosing instead to stay there with the servants at the king's palace. And when David asks him, why would you do such a thing? He explains to him why he did not want to delay his return to the battle. Now, there's something really important that's taking place here. And to help explain it, I want you to think back to 1 Samuel. Do you remember when David came to the priest Ahimelech, when he was running from Saul, claiming that he was on a mission being sent by Saul? And he asked the priest if he had anything to eat. Remember this? The priest tells him, well, the only thing I have is the sacred bread. But he said, in order for you to have that, you and your men will have to have been kept free from women. David responds and basically says, yes, that's been the case because we are on a mission from God. And so we are ceremonially clean. Here's the deal. God required that anyone sent on a divine mission to be ritually clean. There was a purification process, which included people who were sent into battle. They had to go through a purification process to be ritually clean, to go and represent the name of God, even when they went to battle. And being with a woman, according to Levitical law, made a man unclean which would require him to go through the ritual process of becoming pure before he could resume the duties of going back to the battle. See, if Uriah lay with his wife, it wasn't a sin. But he would have had to delay his return by becoming ritually pure before he could go back 
to the battlefield, and he knew that. And he did not want to delay that process. So he did not go home to his wife. Uriah refused to go home in order to protect his purity so that he would not not delay his return to his men in battle. I want you to notice what's happening here. Uriah the Hittite, a converted foreigner, is living and acting in a way more righteous than David, the king of Israel. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Well, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. See, this is that slippery slope of sin. God is trying to get David's attention. In fact, I think Uriah is another divine stop sign. Uriah's devotion is another evidence of the righteousness of God trying to shine light on the sin of David. It's as if God is putting a spotlight on Uriah's purity in an effort to reveal David's sin, but David blows right past the stop sign. He doesn't even pump his brakes. I'm convinced that David was fully aware of Uriah's devotion. He knew the laws of purity. We know that because of what we read back in 1 Samuel. But instead of yielding to the righteousness of God, he tries to resort to manipulation. He gets Uriah drunk so that he would lose his inhibition. Instead of of affirming Uriah's commitment, he's trying to weaken Uriah's resolve. And here's the, the, the irony. Think about this. Drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. Drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. Because despite David's attempt of manipulating his most loyal soldier, Uriah still refuses to compromise. And yet the more David refuses to repent, the more callous his heart will become. Look at what happens next in verse 14. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Isn't it amazing that David trusted Uriah so much that he sent him back to battle with his own death warrant? By this time, I feel certain that Joab has caught on to what David is doing. 
David is losing credibility because of his compromise. He's destroying trusted relationships because of his compromise. Here's what's happened. The Israelites had destroyed the Ammonites who have run to a city called Rabbah. And they have employed a very common military tactic at that time called the siege. What they would do in a siege is they would essentially surround a city and they would cut off all food and water supplies into that city. And then they would wait. They would weaken the enemy before they would plan their attack and they would wait. It might take months, but they would wait as the city was held under siege. And so what David asks of Joab is to to send Uriah and his most valiant men on literally a suicide mission, knowing that Uriah would be loyal enough to actually carry it through. Because what he asked them to do is when they were being held under siege is to go to the front door of that city, the city gate, and basically try to attack them through an impenetrable wall as people would stand on the top of the city wall and pick them off with bows and arrows like sitting ducks. It was a suicide mission. David selfishly murders Uriah to protect his own skin. And not just Uriah. Some of Israel's most valiant men died that day. And David is responsible for all of it. David's heart has grown callous with compromise. We know that because Joab sends a message back to David and it basically says, the deed is done. I want you to look how David responds in verse 25. In response to that message, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and so encourage him. This is cold. This is really, really cold. Basically, what David is saying here is, well, death is an unfortunate reality of war. Carry on. This is not who we have known David to be. Just think about this. When David, when Saul died, what did David do? He wept. He wept because of the life of a man who spent most of his life trying to kill him. When Abner died, what did David do? He wept. A man who tried to use him and manipulate him for power and influence. When he died, David wept. When Uriah dies, David doesn't shed a tear. One of his most loyal men. And I'll tell you what David has just proven to all of us. Unconfessed sin creates a calloused heart. It makes you hard. It makes you insensitive to the things that should break your heart. So David goes on and marries Bathsheba after Uriah's death. And it seems as if his plan has been successful. He's had to maneuver in some very evil ways, but it looks like he's going to get away with this thing. He's blown right past many of the divine stop signs that God had intervened in an attempt to redirect him. But David's about to hit a brick wall. And I want us to look at that together. Look at chapter 12, 
verse 1. Then David said to Nathan, or sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished and grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom as was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So here's what's happening here. Nathan is a trusted friend of David's. And when he comes to him, he tells him a story. But this is not some parable. You see, David as king would have been considered to be judge. And there would be cases that were brought to him in which he would be expected to make a ruling. I believe as far as David is concerned, Nathan is bringing a legitimate case to him and asking for David to give his ruling. It's a case involving a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has an abundance of everything he might need. The poor man has to work for every single thing he has. In fact, his most prized possession is a little ewe lamb that has become more like a family pet. They nourish it, they care for it, because in time, that little lamb will be all the food that that family has to eat. Well, the rich man has a guest who comes to visit him, and as would have been customary, the man would have been obliged to provide this guest some food. But instead of taking from his abundance, he steals from the poor. He takes that family pet and he slaughters it to feed his guest. And when David hears the story, he judges rightly. Look at what he says in verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. This is an easy case. David's judgment is quick, it's decisive. The man deserves to die. Now look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Four of the most painful three-letter words in all of Scripture. You are the man. David has passed judgment on himself. And he has judged rightly. He is the rich who has stolen from someone else. Someone that didn't belong to him. Nathan goes on to speak on God's behalf to explain to David all the consequences that would follow. And then I want you to look at David's response to Nathan after that list was carried through. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. No excuses, no justification, just a sincere 
admission of guilt. David made lots of mistakes. He hurt a lot of people along the way. But in the end, David sinned against the Lord. He deserves to die. But God is going to give him grace. Now, when we consider the story of David, I often think that we come at the story of David and look at it as a story of David's sin. And there's some truth to that because there's a long list of mistakes that David made along the way. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that the story of David is more about God's grace. God's grace. Because of all the things that God did to try to redirect David along the way. There is a long list of divine stop signs that he had to pass right by in order to continue down the path of compromise. Let me just give you some examples. First, David had to disregard God's word. Because God's word was explicitly, specifically clear. That a man was not to have multiple wives, whether he was a king or anyone else in Israel. By God's design, there was a covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And David knew that, but he willfully chose to disobey God's word. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 13, it's almost hidden. It's almost a passing thought, but this is what it says. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem. See, his passion was not satisfied by the variety. It was ignited. His ongoing lust would slowly erode his integrity to the point that David knew God's word. But he chose to ignore God's word. But yet God continued to intervene. Because when David blew past that stop sign, he sent him a servant who spoke truth to him when he told him explicitly, David, that is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, your mentor, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, your most trusted soldier. David, she's married. He blew right past it. And so God sent Uriah, a man of integrity, to shine light on David's sin. A loyal soldier, a faithful husband, a righteous man. He was everything David should have been. It's as if God was putting a spotlight on the righteousness of Uriah and calling David to say, you should be this man. God gave David his word. God gave David a warning. God gave David an example. And in the end, God gave David a friend. See, there was no possible reason that Nathan could have or would have known anything about David's secret sin. The only way Nathan knew is because God told him and he sent him to speak those words to his friend. The proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend who is willing to speak the truth in love, including the 
truth of forgiveness, including the truth of confrontation, even when that hurts. That's why God sent Nathan to David. God is relentless in his pursuit of David's heart. Please don't miss that in the mess of David's sin. And here's why that's important. God is just as relentless is in his pursuit of your heart and mind. Remember, the story of David is your story too. And here's why. God has given you his word, outlining the boundaries of his design, boundaries that are there for your protection, boundaries that are filled with his blessing, Boundaries that don't inhibit your joy, but they invite you into freedom. They invite you to be everything that God created you to be. God has given you his word. But he didn't stop there. God gives us warnings. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has come upon you but what is common to man, and God is faithful and he is just, not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but in everything he will give you a way of escape so that you might endure it. Another way to say, your life is filled with divine stop signs. All along the way, you will see a way of escape when you face temptation. It might be a sermon. It might be the words of a song we sing on Sunday morning. It might be a comment from a stranger or the words from a friend. And it won't be just once. It'll be over and over again where God is providing a way out. But just like we see with David, if we choose to ignore the divine stop sign and the more we blow past them, the harder our heart will become. So finally, God has given us a friend, more specifically a counselor, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, who literally speaks the truth of God to your heart, convicts you of sin, points you to the place where you find forgiveness. See, God is relentless. He's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to a place of repentance. It's like the song we just sang. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Our story is ultimately a story of God's grace. It's a very familiar passage in the Bible talks about how surely the Lord's goodness and kindness will follow you all the days of your life. Y'all have heard that verse, right? That word follow literally means chase after you. God is chasing after you. He is relentless in his pursuit of your heart. So let me encourage you. Please do not leave this morning without seeing God in his relentless pursuit of you. Don't ignore the stop signs. Don't ignore the warnings, the way of escape. Don't cover your sin. But confess your sin. 
so that you may be healed. Now, isn't it interesting that we would encounter a passage like this in a world in which we live when if you go to the headlines of any news, you would see it filled with David-like stories. Am I right? But you tell me if I'm wrong. Not once. Not once have I seen a David-like confession. I have sinned in the eyes of God. Not once. And as a result, we see a continued path of erosion and destruction in the integrity and fabric of our society and the culture in which we live. So would you please, please take time this morning to allow God to speak truth to your heart so we don't follow into that same pattern that we see in the life of David because nobody in this room is immune. Where comfort leads to apathy. Apathy leads to compromise. And compromise becomes a slippery slope of sin. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some time to be quiet before the Lord. He sent a friend, a counselor, to speak to your heart. And I, li- I want you to listen to what he has to say. And then when we finish up, I'm going to read to you Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote in response to Nathan's confrontation. And let me encourage you to take those words to heart. And don't just listen to it this morning, but maybe pull out your Bible this week and reread those words again. And maybe in some ways, let it become your prayer before the Lord. So if you would, be still, be quiet. Don't blaze past the stop signs, but listen to God speak to your heart. Let's pray. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my transgressions. For I I know my sin, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I deserve to die. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take 
your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing and obedient spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you through my testimony. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered at your altar. Lord, we thank you for being that sacrifice on our behalf. For relentlessly pursuing our hearts and calling us to a place of forgiveness. Lord, we are sorry that we so often fall into the compromise of this world and try to cover our sin, just like we see in the life of David. We can learn to manage life without depending upon you. And Lord, forgive us for looking for your blessing, but not seeking your face. Father, we are humble before you. We need you. Every hour we need you. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. So may we live with the gratitude and obedience that reflects a true heartfelt understanding of what you've accomplished on our behalf. And may we stand in stark contrast to what we see in the world around us so that the righteousness of God would be put on display for the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Have a good day.